Every once in a while, something brand new leaps out at me from the biblical texts I have read and digested for decades. I was thinking this week, I, I have been at this gig f- since uh, 1979. That was my first Christmas leading worship. So this is my 40th Christmas in this role. And leading up to those, leading up to the big Sunday, or leading up to the big event, Christmas, the Sundays in Advent tell the story of John the Baptist year after year after year, and we hear the ancient prophecies of Isaiah year after year after year. And these passages are so familiar to me, I I confess I almost don't hear them. But once in a while, maybe due to my life circumstance or just by chance, like catching something out of the corner of my eye, I wasn't expecting, I'll, I'll hear a phrase as though for the very first time. That happened this week as I sat with that oracle from Isaiah, that glorious oracle from Isaiah. The prophet tells of the glorious restoration of Israel. The people had been carted off into captivity. This is centuries before Jesus enters the scene, but now something new is emerging, says Isaiah, a rebirth of the nation, a return to their land. And the text, it's a beautiful text, isn't it? It it just brims with joyful hope and strikingly beautiful imagery. The people, as well as the very land, will be healed and restored, and all shall see the glory of God. And then this sentence, a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. It shall be for God's people, no traveler, not even fools shall go astray. And that's the phrase that caught my attention. Not even fools shall go astray. Normally that just whizzes right by as a kind of throwaway line, but but this year, for some reason, I heard it as an especially hopeful proclamation. Anyone ever felt foolish? Have you ever done something really stupid? Well, according to Isaiah, in God's future, even fools will find their way home. I guess that means that no one here this morning would be excluded. Not that I have anyone particular in mind, (laughs) other than myself, other than myself, because from time to time I have counted myself among the ranks of the fools. But then I see how foolish the entire human race seems in its captivity to its less noble traits and behaviors. Wow. We are absolutely awash 
in abject foolishness, are we not? We don't have to look further than any media feed on our phones for evidence of this from world events, wars and rumors of wars and political slights and parochial arrogance and violence to the American Congress, to business corruption, to the guy arrested, say, for drunk driving, to any wife or husband who has ever bald-faced lied to their partner, to the parents screaming, just plain stupid, narcissistic claptrap to their child, to undermining of colleagues at work, to hiding in plain sight with multiple masquerades. Honestly, but for the fact that the future belongs to God, we would seem to have no hope at all finding our way home if left to our own devices. Isaiah captures the grand sweep of God's intention. Even the earth will be restored. Joy shall prevail. Of course, if this were ever to actually occur in the fullness of the vision, we humans would have to leave our foolishness behind. Fools will travel the path home, but once arrived, the foolishness would have to come to an end. And I suppose that's one of the important lessons we glean at this time of year. Part of the restoration of God, part of the restoration God intends, is our own restoration. Our own coming to terms with our own foolishness. As in you and me coming to terms with our own foolishness. Christians read Isaiah at this time of year in part because of the hopeful future orientation of God's will for the world and the human race. Jesus, we say, continues in this great prophetic tradition, even maybe its crown jewel. Last week we heard John the Baptist reference Isaiah and the holy highway of God saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And in response, liturgically, we say we're awaiting Bethlehem's child. That's what our candle countdown is all about. And today we learn that John the Baptist wondered if he had it right if this Jesus was the one upon whom all of time had been focused. Was Jesus the fulfillment of God's intention with the world? Would he show the way home that even fools could not resist? For myself, I think John had good reason to question whether Jesus was the hope for Messiah. Jesus didn't fit the expectations. Maybe he had the grace and charisma, we suspect. But was he the one really? Eventually, Jesus walked into a disastrous outcome arranged by foolish humans. 
Surely not what anyone had hoped for, prayed for, a crucified Messiah was not on anyone's radar. But then from the cross came those haunting words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Maybe said in a less generous way, or perhaps in Isaiah mode. The fools don't get it, God, but, but love them anyway. And even they may then find their way home one day. Let's try a little thought experiment here. Let's shift our focus to a small scene. Say, to your bedroom, for instance. When you've awakened in the middle of the night, you're aware that you have been sweating profusely. You awaken with the searing insight that what you did was stupid and wrong, flat out wrong. There is no escaping this. It isn't a matter of blaming anyone else like, you know, your parents or some friends or, or even the fates. You are unusually clear. Interestingly, ethics did not really concern you during the actionable time frame. Only now, during a restless night, did this awareness slap you awake. And this in itself is interesting because normally you don't suffer your conscience very much about the things you do. You're very, very much better at finding and cataloging the faults in others. You think to yourself, you should undo what has been done. On the other hand, you could let it go, like you have on most other occasions. You could probably get away with it after all, but the knowing would fester, and the festering could turn to poison. Still, you wager with yourself that tolerating a little bit of poison might be the better path. In fact, you've recognized that you've had that taste in your mouth for a long while now, and you are, upon second thought, surprised to realize that you have been drinking this poison for the better part of your lifetime. You have succeeded in fooling a hell of a lot of people about your true nature, you think to yourself. You are very good at the realistic disguise. But now, during the night of surprising insight, you see all this very clearly, very clearly, and it dawns on you, you don't have to live this way anymore. 
you sense that if you could let this foolishness go, it could lead to something altogether different, something very, very much better. The foolishness could give way to a, a new start and to having life and love in all of its fullness. All the pretending BS could evaporate. Completely out of character, it occurs to you that you could ask God for help. So in a very rare moment of humble vulnerability, you do quietly ask, God, please help me become the person I'm meant to be after all. And just like that, you're on your journey home. Or stay with me for a slightly different vignette. Same bedroom. Let's suppose you're the victim of some bad behavior, something that happened maybe a long while ago, something that festers, something that has grabbed your heart or your lungs or your brain and squeezes these organs, constricting your ability to live fully, sometimes interfering with work or personal relationships. This gnaws at you and haunts you, but you feel righteous and justified in your residual resentment. Some of the time you fantasize about getting back, getting even, getting your due. Sometimes you hate. In fact, maybe, maybe it dawns on you, it's there that hate all of the time. For shorter or longer periods, you don't think about it directly, but its affect never dissipates. Suppose, dear victim, you awaken in the night and you see all of this clearly, and it occurs to you that a decision has been set before you. You didn't ask for it, but there it is. You're staring at the ceiling, and you feel the seductive temptation to travel one more time to the place of revenge and payback, wallowing like an addict in resentment. Or, or you can simply let it go. That is, let go of your attachment to the pain. It occurs to you that this attachment has held you captive, that it owns you, that it has bred a dark, angry, even violent sensibility. But now, in this moment of clarity, you see you have a choice. You see you can actually sense a, a better place beyond the horizon of your present experience. You can feel it. You can feel it. And you can choose it. You see it opening before you as the gift of the future. You can sense the hope in this, the hope for something very much better. Maybe for the very first time you realize that you can actually help create that better place. You can pray to God to make it so, and you do. And then it occurs to you how foolish you have been 
but a smile spreads across your face because you recognize that it's possible the fool can stay on track and go the distance. And oh my, the relief is awesome. Profoundly joyful. Tears well up in your eyes. You can sense that I know something of which I'm, of what I am speaking. It occurs to me that that's one way to explain the sensibility of the season. As we look to the coming of Christ, we see that something different, something very much better really is possible, even inevitable if we will open our hearts to it. In the meantime, all the fools are on their way to the manger. The new thing is coming. It's nearly impossible to believe, and yet we see that the highway, the holy way, opens up before us. No traveler, not even fools, will be able to go astray. And man, oh man, I think that is really very good news for all of us. Thank God. Holy smokes. Thank God.